continue on in Judges. I call this one Let the Games Begin because we move from introduction on into uh, the stories, the narratives that we see through Judges. And I was thinking about starting and I looked at most fairy tales and they begin with Once Upon a Time. And then from there, it's set up for the story to unfold. And that moves our mind when we see that to another place, another position, another country in and we're ready for the narrative to begin. Well, Judges has set quite the once-upon-a-time scene, one filled, and I want us to remind ourselves of this, one filled with moral and spiritual brokenness. Uh, the story began, if you remember, with two introductions. Uh, one was a historical introduction that kind of laid out what it looked like at that time as they walked into uh, the Promised Land, and then it was a, a literary introduction all of them centering around the death of Joshua. So both introductions, you can tie to this idea, Joshua dies, and then we have a historical introduction, and then they re-reference Joshua dying, a repeat of Joshua uh, 15, and then it moves on and talks about what they did. And as you look at those, you see everything moving from the death of this great leader, and then it, it sets up this idea, and this is something we don't want to miss in Joshua What we have set up for us is this idea that Israel is entering the promised land and it is filled with potential. Uh, The great potential for Israel is here, 700 plus years of building to this time to occupy the promised land for them to come in and be God's people. And then what do we see? Sadly, their colossal stumbling. So the once upon a time, there was a nation chosen by God with the potential to be a light to all the world. But instead, they chose the darkness of that world and pursued it. And this, Judges, is that story. It's a story where we're going to watch through history and we see succeeding generations of humanity seem to repeat this same story. Uh, Instead of being the light, they end up pursuing the darkness. Uh, Israel is going to face uh, waves of oppression because of this. God is bringing in correction. God is bringing in uh, different nations to turn them back, yet God is going to send deliverers every time uh, to free them and to guide them. And so with that stage set, uh, we see the story unfold. And that's where I say, let the games begin, so to speak. And they start with a judge, and every one of these stories is going to move from judge to judge, centering the story. And it begins with a judge showing godly balance, and that's Othniel. I'm going to try through all these judges to kind of give us one uh, kind of characteristic that they display. And so I'll read through that again. It says that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and this one's going to define the evil. They forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim, eight years. And by the way, you can't miss that guy's name because it's repeated about a hundred times, it feels like. Uh, When the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. And that's the word for judge that we oftentimes talk about. Uh, Shaphat, it's it's someone who is going to both rule uh, under God's hand and also be that military uh, liberator. Who delivered them? Even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel, and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed against Cushan Rishathaim, and the land had rest forty years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, 
I want us to see some things. One, that sin cycle that we have seen portrayed in the two introductions unfolds in full force. Uh, the people of Israel begin to serve Baal. Uh, but notice it's Balaam, and we talked about this two weeks ago. Balaam is a plural form of a singular God. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic because everywhere you went in Canaan, covering the whole breadth of the promised land, they were serving Baal, which was a singular false God, but everyone had their own version of him. A false God can have multiple versions. And so when you see the plural, you're recognizing that the nation of Israel is serving Baal in their locale. So where they're at, they're serving Baal. And then it says the groves, which is Asherah, which we talked about in detail. The Asherah, the Asherah, and then even another female goddess that's there all get kind of interwoven, very fluid in the mindset, but it was a very perverse worship. And so what you have with groves, because they would put poles up to worship uh, in their area, Baal was the god of rain and the god of fertility, and he's got these wicked relationships with other gods and his stepmom and all these weird dynamics, and the worship of that unfolds in perverse practices. And so what you see painted right here as we start this out, because Othniel has a few verses. He's not given a lot. Actually, he's given the fewest of the major judges, and it's easy to walk over who he is. What you don't want to miss is that Othniel, and that's why I use the word godly balance, is probably one of the more spiritual judges that we're going to have, who is replicated in the final judge, which is Samuel. And so you're going to see Othniel with the stability. You're going to see Samuel at the end, who is also a judge, same word used in Hebrew, uh, when he delivers Israel in battle 20 years into his ministry. He's called a judge as well, and there's that same kind of balance that comes in. So we don't want to lose sight of what Othniel accomplishes, but we also don't want to lose sight of how prevalent sin had come into Israel at this time because it's all through the nation. And then this guy from Mesopotamia, most likely, Kushan Rishathaim, which, by the way, was his nickname. Uh, his Rishathaim means doubly wicked. So this is the name that the people he conquered would give to him, Kushan, the doubly wicked king. And so, as I mentioned briefly, he is most likely from Mesopotamia, which is north of Israel. And so we're going to see a deliverer come from the south. And so by implication, all of Israel has been taken over. Uh, there is a chance that his, uh, he is a Hebrew, Habaru king, uh, which means he would have an alliance with the king of Shechem, which would have given him a middle base of operation in the nation of Israel. Regardless of whether he was officially from Mesopotamia or he was this Habaru king, he would have taken over most of Israel in his invasion. And so what we have is this king known as doubly wicked. If you study the Habaru people, they were a nomadic people. Uh, one person mentioned he might have been a vassal king to the Hittites. No matter what one he falls into, he would have invaded all of Israel and he would have been known as a very heavy-handed oppressor. This is not people coming in and then letting you rule on your own. These people would have put an extensive burden on Israel. Uh, they would have been uh, difficult to live under. Uh, and you see that in his name. You see that in the people that he represented, no matter which one it was uh, from history. And, and then you see that the oppression and punishment was heavy and widespread, uh, so prevalent, so pressing, that there's only eight years of facing it before Israel is crying out to God. 
And so roughly around uh, 1375 BC, and I'll throw out dates to, to help fix our brain on them, uh, but you have to be careful with the dates because it wasn't perfectly aligned. And so uh, from one commentator that has a nice conservative view uh, coming out early Exodus, 1375 BC, Israel is sold into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim. And then eight years later, so 1367 BC, they've cried to the Lord, and he's responded by calling Othniel, and I put a man of godly balance. And you might say, why godly balance? And a lot of that ties to who he is based on his history. And I put, I say godly balance because Othniel gives us a picture of spiritual stability and longevity. And it's important to recognize who he is. And so we'll go back in history. Uh, he is the God that Caleb trusted, and then he's in part of the conquest, and now he's part of the first judge in the occupation. I put here, he's someone who's com- consistently trusted God's working in and upon his life, and he's been used to do the impossible. Um, the result is a life that is the spiritual bedrock for family, community, and nation. And that's when you see Othniel, you need to see spiritual stability. You need to see somebody who lived his life for God. He has a long history of that, and somebody who's willing to step up when God calls and to do the impossible, so to speak. He is a strong, uh, somewhat quiet spiritual man that stepped up to conquer Debir when Caleb sought a leader. He's successful there. He marries Caleb's daughter, and he acquires property and no doubt prominence in that area. Othniel is still, though years later, the strong spiritual man that is now stirred up to step up in God's name and for God's purpose to deliver Israel from a wicked oppressor. I put this note here. He's no weakling. He is not one that's given a list of accolades for battle. If you look at Ehud, who is next, he stabs a king with an 18-inch dagger that he's made himself. Shamgar is going to kill 600 Philistines with an ox goad. You look at Gideon, and he's going to smash jars, and he's going to conquer. And you walk through, Samson's going to do these great feats. Jephthah's going to do these great feats. And so a lot of the judges, as you walk into them, you see them in battle. You see their prowess on the battlefield. Othniel doesn't have this long list of all these exploits of personal battle. And I want us to make sure we, we don't think he wasn't a good warrior. So I want us to track back to what he did. We've seen him as a warrior, and a unique one at that, willing to face giants. So understand, when he entered the land, the giants that scared 10 spies and then convinced Israel to go into sin against the Lord and then spend 40 years in the desert because of that, he's the guy when Caleb says, hey, I'm the giant slayer, but I need someone to lead on this next town who's willing to do it, he's the one that stepped up. And so I just get in our mind who he is as a warrior. This guy was very skilled. He was not fearful at all. And yet we don't get a bunch of things about what he did, emphasizing his honor, how many people he killed. And I think God does that on purpose because in Othniel's mind, God's glory was what needed to be displayed. There's a reason for that. He's a gifted man. He is a courageous man. He's capable of great feats of leadership yet never to the point of personal arrogance and demands. When I say godly balance and I look at Othniel, this is who we should be aiming at. This is a judge where it's, you, it's hard to find anything against him that would, would be a charge that we say was on the negative side of things. 
People have some things to say about Ehud. So you have things to say about, obviously, Samson. That one's an easy one to pick on. There's even things with Samuel's life later on where his kids are wicked and engage in the same wickedness that Eli's sons used to engage in. And so you have, you have something there, but not with Othniel. Othniel is this guy that's never put his skill forward. He's always called to do something. He is obviously extremely gifted, but he sees God's hand at work and he trusted in God and glorified God in his victories. Every time it's about what God would accomplish. If you go back to his early victory in Debir, and you'll remember he's never assertive or presumptuous about his rewards. It's actually his wife who comes to her dad saying, give me more land. And I think she was a did it appropriately. I think that was what her role was in that relationship. I mentioned back then, I think they made quite the power couple, so to speak. They were, uh, she was a huge helpmeet. They ran together. And so where he was not going to step in and be assertive in that way, she was going to take what was needed or push for that. However, he didn't ask for anything. There was never this presumption of you owe me idea in Othniel. He paints the picture of the ideal judge and deliverer, spiritually deep and dependable. A lot of the judges will say that the Spirit of God came upon him. He's one of those uh, that has that. Now, I want you to notice something about the major judges, and Othniel, again, is that example. Uh, They are going to both overcome in battle. There's going to be a military deliverance, and then they're also going to direct the people after the victory. So there is fighting and there is guidance. Um, They're called to this ministry individually by God. <clears throat> this is not an inherited title. Othniel's son doesn't take over as judge. The same as Gideon said, don't make me king. And then it's his son, Abimelech, that says, make me a king, which would have been sinful. All of the judges are individually selected by God for a certain time in history to help rule the people, to carry it out. And they carry this for an extended period of time. There's a military victory, and then they typically rule And during that time, you find that the people are faithful to God. And so we watch that cycle, and we we see, and when I read it, I always see Israel like, oh, there they go again. And we we quickly run through 40 years of, of life. We need to recognize that after there's a victory with the judge, there's 40 years after Othniel where the nation of Israel is following God before they start slipping up. So Othniel, as the first judge, is the picture of a spiritually balanced ready to serve his God, man. He moves confidently when called by God. He serves knowingly under God's power and deliverance and is used by God to remove an enemy that had permeated much, if not all, of Israel. It's very short. It's the first one. I don't think there's any other oppressor than Kushan Rishathim. I'm about tired of saying that name. um, That covers all of Israel like he did. And there's not a judge that delivers all of Israel like Othniel does. It's a short reference. He only has a few verses. But when you're serving like he serves, it only takes a few verses to understand who he is and what he's accomplished. I put here, um, what do we learn in this first round? If you're looking at this unfolding narrative, because that's what it's going to move from narrative, we actually skip over 40 years of serving the Lord. Then after Ehud, we have 80 years of serving the Lord with just one story during that time. We're moving to the points of crisis every time. Judges is about confrontation and about crisis and the deliverance that God brings up. So what do we learn in the first round? One, how quick and completely Israel fell into sin. How fast did that happen? Othniel is part of the conquest. 
And even in his region, they're worshiping Baal. They've slipped that quickly. And then stop right there in looking at Israel and saying, I can't believe Israel did that. And look at yourself and recognize something that we need to have sit heavy on us, how easy and how quick we will slip, how fast it can unfold in front of us. The first round of oppression was the most widespread, both in how much land they covered, but also in how wicked Israel had fallen in, in the sense of the corruption spread all through Israel. All of Israel, Balaam, the plural of Baal, and the groves, diving into the worship of the land. And that's a warning to us as well that it moves fast. Uh, We see God doing exactly what he said. Some people look in the Old Testament and they see the wrong picture of God because they've made a God of their own making and they don't recognize that God is never uh, fickle or emotional or hasty, but instead he's a God of his word. He's reliable. He's true to his word. He's immutable. He doesn't change. What did God say? You serve them. I'm going to send correction through the nations around you. And that's exactly what he does. And then what do we see? We see God bringing up his solution. You see, God didn't have to send a deliverer. That's his mercy. Othniel is a picture of God's mercy. And that's what's unique about Othniel is here he is ready to be God's instrument, ready to go when called. And I put and underline this, Othniel is a picture of how to start and finish your life for the Lord. You want to live right for the Lord? Read his story over and over again. Read what he did. When it's time to fight giants, you fight giants. When it's time to deliver Israel, you deliver Israel. Called by God, serves God when he's called to do that. Humble, he seems somewhat quiet, but yet there when God asked him to be. He was a man that maintained a lifetime of godly balance, which meant constant service for the Lord and ever readiness to step onto the field of battle or to step forward in a more public way for his God. And then I put as a question, I wonder, are we spiritually balanced like Othniel? Do we have, do we bring that stability? And the word I want you to have fixed in your mind is the bedrock of your family, of your community, of your church, of your nation. Are we stable and dependable in our faith? Or are, are we considered the spiritual bedrock of our sphere of influence, and that's talking about your family, your children, that extends out into church and community, or are we just the constant fireworks and problems? And that's something you want to evaluate in yourself. How easily is your boat rocked? You're not bedrock. How easily are you thrown off? How easily are you flaring up? How easily are you moved back and forth? That's not Othniel. He's locked in and he supplies the stability to the nation of Israel. And what do we get after Othniel? 40 years. 40 years. And think about this because Judges moves from crisis to crisis and we quickly forget how long 40 years is. Eight years of subjection after falling into sin of idolatry and perversion, and then 40 years where his character provides the stability for all of Israel. Now, sadly, Israel deviates again within a generation, the 40 years, and turns again to evil. But this next correction takes place in a few tribes, not all of Israel. And so you start seeing what Othniel has accomplished or what 
precedent he sets. But sadly, they do turn to evil. Whenever it says they turn to evil, it means idolatry and perverse worship. So that they're not going to re-explain every time when we turn to it. The word evil every time is they started worshiping Baal. They started engaging in perverse worship. And then it says the word again, which in Hebrew means added to. In other words, it's layered. In God's mind, it's not returning to the same. It's adding a sin on top of another sin. And what does God do? He raises up an oppressor to correct their behavior. And this, and we're about to read it with Ehud, is going to be Moab. And you're going to see Ammon and Amalek joining in with Moab. And anytime you see Moab, Amnon, and Amalek, they seem to be together, and that's because they're in the same area of the world. And so you go over the Jordan, you go past Reuben and Gad, and then you have Moab right here. Ammon and Amalek is right above it. They could never all three be strong at the same time. One's going to be strong. The other two are going to serve that nation. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that move back and forth. So Moab is the strong one. And what happens is they're powerful. They're bringing in the other nations. Well, Moab's obese king, which scripture, when they say he's a very fat man, they mean he's obese, right? They're, just, they're not exaggerating there. Uh, they're letting you know. So this obese king crosses the Jordan and takes the area around Jericho, and he builds at least one structure. And, and I'm not a person that thinks that archaeology has to prove the Bible uh, the Bible is true. I don't care what archaeology says, but archaeology gets it right this time. There's actually, in that area, he doesn't rebuild the whole town of Jericho. He has one structure that is built. Archaeology has that one structure there. That's the building that Ehud is going to walk into and stab Eglon. But he comes in, and what does he do? He establishes a base of operation across the Jordan, so he doesn't, he doesn't rule from his land. He rules from Jericho's region, and he oppresses for 18 years, uh, certain tribes, and he's going to affect these tribes. Benjamin, he's affecting Ephraim. There's an indication where he's at that he would have possibly affected parts of Judah. And though unmentioned, there's two tribes on the other side of the Jordan, Reuben and Gad. So I'm moving my hands. I see the map in my eye. I know you probably don't. But there's a Jordan River here, Reuben, actually Reuben and Gad, and Moab. So for him to cross the Jordan... He's got to mess with Gad and Reuben. And so what you have is a couple tribes, a few there, about five that are affected by the infestation of Moabites. Uh, and then Israel cries out and God raises up a deliverer, a judge, who manifested, and I put here, godly boldness. This is Ehud. And let me read the story. He's given quite uh, a long period of time. He's given a lot of verses to tell his story, and I'll explain a little bit later, but the main reason for that is his story is a little more unique. I call it a, a scripted play with some solo action that takes place. So look at this, and the children of Israel did evil again, and that word again in Hebrew means, and the children of Israel added evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. The city of palm trees is Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. 
But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab. And whenever Scripture tells you this, there's a reason. And Eglon was a very fat man. So there you have it. We know he's obese. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. And I'll mention this by present. This is not Christmas time at all. This is not willing. This is tribute. So the word present is bringing what is required. And when you think, what was he bringing? Well, he's bringing payment. Payment is oftentimes in the, in the form of goods. And so he had a host of people that would have to come with him to carry what Israel is giving to Eglon uh, to buy him off. And so most people think that would have been produce from the land. There was probably maybe some gold and stuff woven in, but mainly would have been produce, and to carry produce takes a lot of people. So what, what Ehud is doing is they've given the gift, presented it to him, and he's sending all of those people away. And then he himself, it says, turned again from the queries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, keep silence. So Eglon says to everyone, be quiet now. And all that stood by him went out from him. So all of the people with Ehud have left Ehud has come back and said, I have something to tell you that's a secret, and he sends his people away. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. When he was gone out, his servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet, which means go to the restroom in his summer chamber. And they carried, or they tarried till they were ashamed, and behold, he opened not the door of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried, and passed beyond the quarries, and escaped unto Sariath. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of the Jordan toward Moab, and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man." So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years, or 80 years. So what do we have? Israel adds to their sin by returning to idolatry, resulting in oppression by Moab, and this is around 1327 B.C. <laughs> this continues for 18 years when Israel, and of course specifically the oppressed tribes, cry out to God, and he calls Ehud, the Benjamite, to deliver God's people from Eglon, and it unfolds in this interesting way. Othniel is your classic leader. He stands up, he gets an army, he goes out and defeats another king. This situation is different. God calls Ehud to a slightly different script or a massively different script, and that takes, I call, solo scenes that he needs to participate in. Now, don't miss this. Ehud is a Benjamite, and when you get to the end of Judges, so as Israel is conquering the land as they begin occupation, the end of Judges is a story about that time. 
And in that story, everyone but 400 Benjamites get slaughtered. We are only at most a few generations from that. So I want you to realize that Ehud and Benjamin are not powerful tribe. This would be by far at this point in time, the smallest tribe in Israel. Now, if he's bringing the present to Eglon, that meant he was a man of prominence in the community. And with Ephraim getting involved and these other tribes getting involved, understand that Ehud is no uh, guy in the cornfield popping up and suddenly jumping in to do something. This is a man who was prominent among the people and prominent across multiple tribes, even though he's from a tribe that's a lot smaller, because Eglon would have demanded that the leaders bring the goods. The guys carrying the goods would have been leaders from the tribe. They're not taking anybody. They wanted to subjugate the people so that leadership always had to come bow down to them. It's part of a psychological warfare, right? If you send the scrubs to give the present, then the leaders can be at home scheming and thinking how they can beat their oppressor. By making leadership come to the oppressor, every time they bring tribute, <coughs> they're forced to bow down, they're forced to see his riches, they're forced to, to be nothing in front of him. And so he has oppressed them in a way that doesn't allow anyone to stand up. I think it's one of the reasons Ehud has to do what he, he does. Because let's be honest, if you're an obese person, and, and I'm not going to claim to be obese, but I'm slightly overweight. I won't tell you how about much, but either way. I know that when I go up the stairs here at church, I'm breathing a little heavier than I wish I was. I know that I'm fairly useless in battle. I've tried to play sports, if you want to call that battle, and I'm no good anymore because I'm slow and I'm old. I'm going to look at Eglon, and I'm going to assume that an obese king isn't leading in battle like Kushan Rithayim. He is ruling from the power of personality, from inheritance, And so here is a guy that sits there and psychologically he's won the battle. I'll mention this because there are 10,000 Moabites invading Israel at the time, which is a lot of people, but it's not overwhelming for Israel to defeat. I mean, 60 years prior, they wiped out one of the more powerful kings that had taken over all of Israel. And so with a fairly small group of people, the Moabites have control over five tribes. And a lot of it is a mental game, and it centers in this one large man who has somehow gotten into their head, so to speak. And so we see here a different plan unfold, and it takes this boldness. Uh, Ehud plans and produces the tools he needs. Most likely, it was a sword with no hilt on it. It had no, no hand guard, so to speak. It's 18 cubits, or it's one cubit, it's 18 inches. If you look at your leg from here to here, he could have strapped it to his leg and it's covered. He can still move his leg, but no one can see the weapon because they're going to search for it. Why mention that he's left-handed? Because everyone else is usually right-handed, so the sword's on the left side. His sword would have been here, but it would have been strapped down, not visible. He makes this tool that really is going to be used for one purpose. Now, they send a delegation of people. They give that to the king. He sends everyone away. And then he says, I got a message for you from God. What's God's message for Eglon? Well, 18 inches of steel in the belly. That's what it was. And I know it sounds rough and it sounds violent, but that's exactly what God had planned for Ehud to do. 
I say that because there's a lot of people that think that Ehud is a guy that stepped out on his own and, and wandered off of what God had planned. He had not. He's called by God to do a very specific action. It just happened to be action that had to take place by himself. And so we see what he accomplishes. And then I put, why do I say a man of godly boldness? Well, here's a man from a small tribe who's called to free Israel from two decades worth almost of oppression, from an enemy that is in their country and living there. Eglon's moved from Moab to Jericho. He's built his big palace. He, has, he is ruling from this base of operation. And here is the chosen warrior that needs to show boldness and significant trust to follow God's plan. He had to be creative and committed. He had to build the weapon that's going to be used for one purpose. He had to go in knowing that he has to handle this alone. He had to follow through by himself. Uh, some commentators write and they think, again, that he's acting in, in a rogue way. Oh, they're Ehud. Or they, they think that the rest of the nation wasn't willing to help him. All the other people <coughs> weren't willing to stay with Ehud, and so he had to do it alone. That's not picturing reality. <coughs> There's not a king in the world that oppresses people that's going to suddenly have a private meeting with a whole delegation of leadership from that nation. Eglon is not a fool. The only reason he sends everyone away is because Ehud, who he thinks is unarmed, is coming back to give him a message. And I'm sure Ehud played it up, not as this bold, brass person, but saying, hey, king, I have a message for you from God. And being Eglon, he's thinking, I'd love to know what God has to say. Why not? But all these other guys leave. Why kill him in secret? Why is that necessary? Well, if he kills him and everyone knows, he doesn't escape. God's plan involved him giving God's message. Eglon had oppressed God's people, and he paid for it. He paid for it, but there was a man that had to step up and say, I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to trust God that I'm going to come in and I'm going to take care of this king and then I'm going to lock the doors and then I'm going to run out of there and then I'm going to raise up an army and we're going to take care of these 10,000 Moabites that are in our land. I want us to notice something. One, he's not acting rogue. Uh, some people have a problem with what they consider his trickery. There was no trickery. He gave God's message. It just happened to be a very physical message. And he did what God wanted. And I want us to notice something. He was called to be the judge and required him to step out alone and do something for God. Oftentimes, we do need to step out alone and do something in that way. And I put here, he doesn't shirk his responsibility. And then he leads into the largest time of peace found in Judges. There's never 80 years of peace ever again. And so he's used by God to do this. And from that peace, from an earthly perspective, it all started with the boldness to act and to act solo. And I, and I put as this a note, we all prefer to act in a group, don't we? When you have mob violence, when you have massive people, you know, not to get into the politics of it, but if you want to go into a city and destroy that city, get a whole bunch of people to go with you, and everyone's willing to act and do something there. In the Christian walk, we oftentimes want to move in a group, and I think that's great. We're called to do that. It's very exhilarating when you go to the mission field with 20 other people and you, you step out and serve together. There's a certain amount of exhilaration and, and joy that is brought with that. But sometimes you have to move alone. And here's my question when we look at Ehud. Do we have enough boldness to move for Christ 
when it's necessary to step out alone. Because that's what Ehud faced. There was a point where somebody, one person, had to go back after giving tribute to a guy that psychologically had them. There was no reason for Israel to be oppressed by Moab. It's not that strong. There's not that many soldiers in Jericho and around the area. This guy has beaten them mentally. But somebody had to walk back knowing they have 18 inches of steel strapped to their leg and be willing to give God's message, have the sense to lock the door, have the sense to run and get out of there, and then go rally the troops. Are we prepared to act? If the situation calls for solo action, are we prepared to act? Because that's the call that Ehud gives us. Now, don't miss God's handiwork. He is in control at all times. You have a king that psychologically has control of Israel. No one's willing to attack Israel. And so God calls Ehud to kill that king. What's changed now? You have no option but to act now. And so Ehud's action set the new scene for Israel where they had no choice. He runs and rallies Ephraim because he knows defeats at hand for Moab, and they do act quickly and understand who set that situation. Some people say it's Ehud. He manipulated Israel. No, it's God who set Israel up to be successful and to do what they are capable of doing in his power. And so what we watch is by Ehud's action, he is the instrument that God wanted to move Israel to do what they needed to do as they called out to him. Ehud was prepared to act. And he accomplished exactly what God had prepared for him to do, and he led Israel into 80 years of peace, though one that likely had lighter skirmishes. And so this sets the tone for all of Judges. You have major judges, which we just did two of them, which is Othniel and Ehud, and then you have what is considered minor judges. And they're not minor in necessarily what they accomplished, but oftentimes in what they faced in the sense of how oppressive were the people they conquered or what took place when they ruled. Of all the minor judges, Shamgar is the one that's most likely a major judge. It's just that he did his job so well that the Philistines couldn't come in. The other four minor judges don't have these conquest moments. But here in the middle of 80 years of peace, we watch the Philistines invade, and we have the next judge, a man who showed godly bravery, Shamgar. And after him was Shamgar, it says in verse 31, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. And that word delivered tells us he's a judge. That is that word that tells us he is a judge and a deliverer. Now, this takes place, most people think, around 1250 to 1229 B.C. It doesn't involve a specific reference to idolatry, though it could have been unfolding in the area. We don't know exactly where he brought this deliverance. But we do know that the Philistines, who will be the oppressor all the way into Saul and David's time, that people group had an influx. They moved inward from the coast at this time to do something, to conquer, to invade. And what we find is a very short history of Shamgar. Now, the Philistines moved in, and whatever Shamgar did ended what they were trying to do. 
And what he accomplished individually is astounding. There's only one other judge that does this much individual damage, and that's Samson. Now, Shamgar, the son of Anath, and that's some of the most critical words about this guy. He is not an Israelite. His name, none of his names are Israelite names. Uh, They actually are connected to a foreign people, the Huranian people. And so what I want you to realize about Shamgar, the son of Anath, is that he's a foreigner, a pagan, who has converted from paganism to truth. And he takes an ox goad, which, by the way, is an eight-foot-tall stick that is six inches round at the base, and it's shaved to a point on the other end. This is an eight-foot piece of hard wood, six inches round on one end. And I want you to get an idea of how strong you need to be to kill 600 people with a wooden stick, because that's what he does. 600 people, and may have unfolded in multiple encounters, I don't know, but the story is here for a reason. It's almost like a break between um, Ehud and Deborah, but you're seeing this guy named Shamgar, and it's here for a reason, and it's godly bravery. He's obviously a strong and powerful warrior. If you sling any handheld weapon, you would tire from that. If you're slinging a sword or you're shooting a bow and arrow, you're going to get tired. Now imagine holding an eight-foot stick that's six inches thick on the bottom, and you're beating trained soldiers. It requires significant strength and, let's be honest, significant skill. You had to be willing, brave enough to tackle, at a minimum, groups of soldiers by himself he killed 600. He didn't lead people to kill 600. Ehud, they killed 10,000 soldiers, but that's Ephraim and all together crossing the Jordan. This one guy with a long wooden stick killed 600 Philistines by himself. And that sounds monumentous, right? But then think about what it takes to step into battle with a stick and fight for God's people. But his bravery, I think, is best seen in him being the opposite of Israel. And I want you to think for a second what Israel does. Instead of turning from truth and holiness to the lie and perversion of the world, which is what Israel repetitively does, he left his world and its worship and perversion for the true God whose people he joined and defended. Shamgar fought physically alone, but he also made a brave and most likely lonely move to worship the only one deserving worship. Shamgar has godly bravery because he went away from the world to God. He joined the people of God. They accomplished what they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be a light to the nation. You want to see the nation? Shamgar represents the Huranian that converted to the true God. The needed physical bravery to take an ox goat and go kill Philistines, I think we would all assume that God's not calling us to that. I know some of you are getting ideas about getting a wooden stick and shaving it down. Just just scrap that. You can do that if you want a whittling project, but that's not what you're necessarily called to. But to boldly leave this world's religion, its activities, its agenda, and its fanatical following for the one and only God, even when everyone you know may have done otherwise, is most definitely the needed spiritual bravery for today. But I put this question here. Are we brave enough to move away from the easy and accepted path? And I'm going to say this, worship of this world. And if you think, Kenny, not everyone here is worshiping. People in the world aren't worshiping. Yes, they are. 
If you don't worship the true God, you're worshiping a false God. It might be yourself, it might be the system, it might be anything else, but you most definitely worship, and you most definitely are rejecting or following what the world has in front of you. So are we brave enough to move away from the easy and accepted path and even worship of this world to follow exclusively our Lord and Savior with everything in us? Godly bravery. Are you able to be Shamgar, the son of Anath, and walk from your world's religion and interest and follow the true God and even be used by God to deliver his people to whom you now belong? Because don't miss that. He might have been born a foreigner, but he has converted to truth, and now he's part of God's people. He is in the list of judges that delivered Israel, which is now his people. Judges, as we know from the first chapter, gives us the sad cycle of Israel's sin and clearly things that must be avoided. However, each deliverer that is raised up by God has traits or characteristics to be followed. And let's be honest, a lot of them have some traits to be avoided, which we'll dive into with Deborah and Barak, because Barak is a mighty warrior but displays some lack of trust in God that should be avoided. These first three, though, show us what it means to have godly balance, the reliable and ready servant, to have godly boldness, to act even when you're alone, when that is needed. And that plays out, doesn't it, in life? Because there's times when you might be at school when everyone else is moving the way of the world and not taking a stand, and you wish they would stand with you, but they don't, and you're called to stand alone, that you need to step up and stand. There's times when you're at work where the pressure is to move in a certain direction, or the other Christians aren't making a stand, or you're the only one that happens to be in that meeting, and you need to stand for Christ and have to stand alone. There are multiple times throughout all of our life when we need to have godly boldness to act even alone when that is needed, and to have godly bravery to move from the world we know to follow the God we need, because that's what Shamgar did. He walked from the world he knew what he grew up in, what was accepted, what was normal, to follow the God that he needed. Our, our world sadly replicates the sin of Israel during the time of the judges. We can't deny that. They chase spiritually whatever seems most likely to give them their result and what permits them to engage in their most permissive behavior. What religion do most people follow? The religion that allows them to be as wicked as they want to be. And that's why we stare at this world, and when I say this world has a religion, yeah, they're following the religion that allows them to do whatever they want to do. I'm not saying that everyone is as wicked as they could be. I'm saying that everyone pursues the wickedness they want, and that's what they do. And what we see is our world repeats the pattern that Israel fell into. Why did Israel go to Baal and the groves? Well, this guy was supposed to bring them financial peace, money prosperity, and the other God let them do whatever their wicked mind wanted them to do, and all in the name of worship. But we are in a world that does that, and we see what that accomplishes. Hopefully, though, as God's church, we can display the godly characteristics of the judges to be spiritually decisive and dedicated, as 2 Timothy 2.21 says, to be ready for every good work.